Hey, Anthem, Bert here. So excited to be with you. Part two, week two in uh, the Gospel of John. If you missed last week and you are new with us today, we just kicked off the book of John. And the book of John is, like every gospel, quite long and uh, is going to take us a while. We're going to be in it about a year. But what we're going to do, pausing for some breaks here and there, is actually break up the book of John into like five or six mini-series, each with sort of their own theme around them that is coming from the text. And so we just kicked off John. We're in John chapter one, and this little mini-series that we're in here is called Come and See. It is John's introduction to not only who Jesus is, but experiencing life with Jesus himself. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to John chapter one. And while you're opening up to John chapter one, I want to give you just a little bit of a brief like where we were last week as we're kicking this off. Because what we talked about last week is, is foundational for what we're going to get at today. We honed in on John's purpose for writing, which we see in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, where John, as he's starting to wind down his letter after the resurrection, says this. He says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John's pulled these stories in his biography of Jesus, these accounts, these teachings, these miracles, these signs, so that you and I would believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God, and that by believing, we would have true life. And in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 1, John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. In Him was life, and the life that was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, who is fully human, fully divine, creator and sustainer of everything, making known the invisible God, comes to earth to bring light to darkness and life from death. This was a particularly important first step in John because the last year has rattled so many of us, right? We're still living in the shadow of 2020, and it's, a, and it's really sort of exposed for many of us how we've functioned as if our problems are big and our God is small. And last week I shared how one writer put it, quote, our spiritual growth is inextricably bound up with the size of our vision of Christ, end quote. That, that how we are growing, maturing, progressing Tackling and handling the issues in front of us have this direct correlation with our vision of Christ, right? If we can get away from this one-dimensional or overly narrow picture of Christ, once we see his fullness and his glory and his amazement and his bigness, our lives will be enlarged. And that's why John is writing what he's writing in these first couple of verses, to enlarge our vision of Christ. That Jesus is fully human, fully God, creator and sustainer of everything, making known the invisible God, bringing light and life. And then we get to the next couple of verses here. 
This next couple of verses are sometimes called the prologue. It's verses one through eight have been called the introduction or the prologue. But I heard one writer reference it as like an overture which is uh, an overture is not like a preface, but in it um, are, are developing in a sort of a thesis for all the musical themes that will come later. So think of it like a hybrid of like a, a thesis you would write for an essay and a song that's being composed. The overture contains all the themes that we're going to unpack through the rest of the book. I don't know if I can say enough how crucial verses 1 through 18 are of not only our understanding of the book of John, but our understanding of Jesus himself and our life with him. One writer uh, has said that everything that follows verse 18 is an effort to show the accuracy and importance of what was said in John's first 18 verses. Which is, I think, by the way, a great set of verses to memorize. If you're looking to put certain scriptures to memory, uh, along with Ephesians 2, Romans 8, uh, Psalm 23, John 1, 1 through 18 is a beautiful set of verses to put to memory over time. It's this robust vision of Christology. And which is why it's so crucial for us to grasp what John is getting at here in these first 18 verses or so. The word, according to John, capital W, word, was both with God, distinct from God the Father, right? We're getting a little picture, a little snapshot into the Trinity, and was God. He was fully God. He was somehow distinct and fully God. The word, the word's true deity is confirmed through his identification as the creator of all things in verse 3. And though fully divine, Jesus entered human existence As we're about to read in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the reason for this incarnation was to bring people back into right relationship with God, to give them the right, as he says in verse 12, to become children of God by faith. So as much as, in as much as the rest of the book finds its home in verses 1 through 18, verses 1 through 18 find their home in verses 1 through 5. Jesus, fully human, fully divine, creator and sustainer of everything, making visible the invisible God, bringing light and life. This is who Jesus is. It's what he's come to do. Now, as we're progressing through this big, expansive, beautiful theology of Jesus, we have what feels like a left turn starting in verse 6. I don't know if you caught this when we were reading the text together out loud, But in verse 6, we get this little like aside with John the Baptist, right in the middle of this beautiful exposition of Jesus. There's this bit of a pause here, and it's to highlight another John. This is a different John. So John, the, the disciple, the apostle, the one whom Jesus loved, right? He's writing this biography. John the Baptist is a different character around the time of Jesus. And John, the disciple, takes a few lines to unpack who this John the Baptist is. And he does this for a couple of reasons. And and one of the reasons he pivots to John the Baptist is to highlight and talk about who he was and what he was, but to also highlight what he isn't. So look at verses 6 and 7. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. So John the Baptist is this man sent from God to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. This light that we read about in verses four and five. 
John was sent by God to point out the way to this life light. He came to show everyone everywhere where to look and who to believe. John is letting us know in this theologically loaded section that God's story is consistent. Right? And, and the reason John the Baptist here get, get, getting called out is so important is because it brings to mind all these prophecies in the Old Testament foretelling Jesus' is coming. Right? And one of the triggers for the Messiah or the Christ would be this voice crying out in the wilderness. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 40, written somewhere between five and 600 years before Jesus comes on the scene. You see, in Isaiah 40, verse 3, a voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Israel had been waiting for an anointed one, a Messiah, a Christ, to come. And as they waited, one of the elements that was going to precede the Messiah was the voice in the wilderness crying out, this forerunner going before, announcing the coming of this anointed one, Messiah Christ. John is telling us that we have a voice in John the Baptist calling to Jesus, that he is the light, he is the life, he is the promised expected one. We'll get to John the Baptist a little bit more a little bit later, but it's particularly important not only because of who John the Baptist is and what he was doing, but who he wasn't. Look at verse 8. He, speaking of John the Baptist, was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. John himself was not the light. He was there to show the way, to point the arrow at who was the light. John wants us to know clearly that John the Baptist was not the anointed one. A lot of people thought he actually was. He was baptizing people, he was preaching, he was calling people to repentance, and he started to look like one of those prophets we might have seen like Jeremiah or Isaiah. And people were starting to think, is this the guy? It's been so long since we've heard anything from God. Is this the guy? And this may not be something that we need to to grapple with, this side of Jesus is coming. But this would have been actually a huge issue and a lot of speculation flying around in the first century about the coming of this Christ. And so one thing that was worth putting to bed right off the bat was that John the Baptist served his role faithfully, beautifully, but he was not the one they were looking for. He was this like forerunner. He was this little picture, this trigger that when you see him coming up on the scene, you should be looking for someone else. So John the Baptist isn't the true light. Who is the true light? Come on, what's the Sunday school answer here? Who's the true light? Jesus. Okay. John 1, 9-13. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, gave the right, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Okay, so remember verses one through five, Jesus created everything. And the irony is rich here in the next couple of verses that the creator entered his created world and the world didn't even notice or recognize him. He was in the world and the world was there through him, yet the world didn't even notice him. He came to his own people, but they didn't want him. 
And John's been saying that that many in Jesus' own creation didn't recognize him for who he truly was. But to all who did receive and believe, he gave them the right to become children of God. Now, we have no right to be children of God on our own accord. This is not something we can claim apart from the work of Jesus, giving it to us. It's not a privilege that all human beings are born with. It's it's not a privilege that all Americans are born with. It's not even a privilege that all Christians are born with. The only people who get to receive this identity marker that John calls out are those who receive Jesus, who believe in his name. This is not everybody everywhere, although the invitation is open to everyone everywhere. It's not for those living in certain countries at certain times. It's not even for all those who would call themselves Christians. There are many Christians who would call themselves Christians who don't actually follow Jesus. This identity marker, being called children of God, is for those who receive and believe in the name of Jesus. Whoever did want him, whoever believed in him, whoever claimed Jesus, Whoever believed that what what Jesus said he would do, he actually did. And and who he said he was, he actually was. He made them to be their true selves, their child of God selves, our truest identity and form and design. And the same is true today. That's not just a that was in the past kind of thing. That is true for us today, that whoever does want Jesus, whoever believes who Jesus said he was, and did what he said he did, that same Jesus can make you become your true selves. That invitation is open for you and for me, is open for anybody, anywhere. That for those who believe in Jesus and receive him and who follow him, you can be made into your true selves. Which kind of bears the question, even for those of us who, you know, go to church and claim to be Christians and everything, do you actually want Jesus? Do you want him? Do you want the life he has for you? Do you want Jesus? Or are you comfortable being a Christian, going to church, being spiritual? Do you want Jesus? If you do, the invitation is open. Please come, according to John. But if you don't want Jesus, you don't get Jesus. And then the last couple of verses in this section are maybe some of the most theologically profound for us. I mean, they're all theologically profound, but these are just so good. Verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That... um, uh, that word dwelt in Greek literally means tabernacled, right? It, it turned a verb into a, or turned a noun into a verb. Jesus housed himself with us. He tabernacled. He set up camp with us, with you and with me. He's made his home in you and me. I love Eugene Peterson's paraphrase here in the message. The word became flesh and blood and moved in to the neighborhood. You know, next door to us, we just got some new neighbors, um, and we just met them, and we've been getting to know them, and they have some kids our same age, and, and which is awesome. But 
There, there's such an incarnational moment when someone, when you see the pod being dropped off and someone carrying their suitcases and their pots and their pans and their bikes and their moving boxes into a house. Like these new neighbors have taken, they didn't just buy the house and have this idea of a house and sort of had this vision of a house. No, no, no. They, they unpacked all their stuff and they moved in to the neighborhood. They moved into this house. And in the same way, it's not just this some abstract idea that Jesus is with you in this kind of vague spiritual way, but he has moved in and he has made his home with you and me, with us. Jesus was fully human, God incarnate. He moved in. The eternally existing word that was with God, that was God, who created everything that was made, became flesh, The very thing he created, he took on the skin and the bones and the organs and the hair that he created. He assumed a a human mind, limited space, a body that would experience pain and suffering. He chose to, to become a human that would be hungry, thirsty and tired and desperate and lonely and angry and disappointed and a myriad of other human emotions and experiences. Paul in Philippians 2 tells us he emptied himself, that Jesus, though fully God, chose to limit his experience for a season to become flesh. We had this conversation in our our backyard community last week as we were talking about this text. That sometimes we can yeah, see the, the things that Jesus did or the things he taught, like, yeah, yeah, but he had the Jesus superpower, right? He was he was still God, right? He's in a different category than we are altogether. And well, yes, he's fully God. He also took on flesh fully and modeled for us as an example, not what it meant to be a God, but what it meant to be fully human, depending fully on the spirit of God. Jesus was a baby that was entirely dependent on his mother's feeding. He was a young boy, a teenager, then a 20-something He was single. He was a man. Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. He set up camp in humanity for 33 years. Jesus' incarnation is the fulfillment of so many prophecies that looked forward to the Christ. And what was not difficult for Jewish people at the time to grasp, but has been increasingly difficult for us to grasp, is that Jesus was actually a human, which means he experienced temptation and hunger. He experienced friendship and betrayal. All the things that you and I experience today, he experienced. And he can be that perfect priest, that perfect mediator for us, that perfect example for you and for me. Not necessarily because he was God, but because he became fully man, living fully dependent on the same Holy Spirit that is available to you and to me. When John tells us about Jesus dwelling or tabernacling among us, it's this picture that of all the prophets that that we're seeing manifested in Jesus. All these things, if you're reading the Bible plan with us, I just started creeping into Isaiah and it's all these prophecies about the coming Jesus. I just read all those famous Advent texts in Isaiah 7, 8, and 9 about this coming baby who'd become Emmanuel and born in Bethlehem and all of that. All of these prophets prophesied hundreds and maybe some thousands of years before Jesus came and perfectly fulfilled by tabernacling among us. Putting our faith in Jesus will not disappoint because he is God dwelling in human flesh. And by doing that, he brought light into the darkness and life from death. 
And John goes on in verse 14, we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Parenthesis, John bore witness about him, John the Baptist, and cried out, this is, was he whom I, I said, he comes after me and ranks before me because he was before me. So this is another throwback to John the Baptist right here. And John says, we've seen this glory with our own eyes. Remember, John was with Jesus. This one-of-a-kind glory, I've seen it, like father, like son, generous inside and out, true from start to finish. Jesus, John pointed at him and called, this is the one. John the Baptist said, this is the one I told you that was coming after me. But in fact, he's actually ahead of me because he's been around since the beginning. He has always been ahead of me. And he's always had the first word. You can hear John's excitement here. You can even hear like, imagine the quill running just a little bit harder, a little bit faster as he's sketching out these first couple of lines. For from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. Verse 16. We all live off his generous bounty. Gift after gift after gift. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Right, John says, we got the basics from Moses. And then this exuberant giving and receiving, this endless knowing and understanding, all this came through Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, Jesus Lord. And while Moses had to hide his face from God, he couldn't be near his glory. Jesus actually like, uncovers and exegetes and excavates. He reveals who God is, the Father. He reveals the Father to you and to me as only the, as only the begotten Son could do. The law was given to Moses and he had to hide his face. He couldn't be fully exposed to the glory. Well, Jesus comes in grace, grace and truth, revealing and unpacking for us the glory of the Father. No one has ever seen him. Verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God, not even so much as a glimpse. This one-of-a-kind God expression who exists at the very heart of the Father has made him plain as day. And verse 18 is really the capstone to this whole opening. It is really the final movement in this overture. Jesus, who is fully human and fully divine, makes known the invisible God. You want to know God? Know Jesus. You know, one of the things um, that we've, we've tried to do as, as parents, Sherry and I, as we're talking to our kids about the Bible and about Jesus, and we've actually tried to stay away from the vague term of God, um, and what we've tried to do is when we talk about God, we talk about Jesus. And we talk about God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. But, but what John tells us here is, is what Colossians 1 tells us is that he is the image of the invisible God. You want to know God, it's Jesus. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Here, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Jesus has made known the invisible God. Jesus is the living, breathing manifestation of God. And so rather than praying to some imaginary, hard-to-picture, abstract deity in our minds, we pray to Jesus. 
who took on flesh and blood and lived and walked and teached, defeated death. So when Truman hurts his arm or Calvin's feelings gets hurt or Emmy is sad about something, we pray, we pray to Jesus because he has made known the invisible God. I want our kids to know Jesus, not just know about kind of a vague, deistic kind of God situation that so many of us fall into. I want them to know Jesus because we can, we got Jesus here. And John says, Jesus made known the invisible God. He brings the character of the Father out. He brings perfect dependence on the Holy Spirit out. And he is the one who we get to see. He took on flesh and blood. He makes known the invisible God. John is writing all of this so that we would believe Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, we will have life. And not just life after death, we will have life here and now, true life in him. The gospel is a rescue story, and Jesus is the rescuer. The gospel story is a promise, and Jesus is the fulfillment. The gospel story is all about Jesus Christ and the grace he has made available to all. Do you want this light that defeats darkness? Know Jesus. Do you want rescue from the pain and suffering and injustice and evil and war of this world? Know Jesus. Do you want meaning, purpose, identity? Know Jesus. Do you want to know God? Know Jesus. Too many of us have spent far too much time being satisfied with something other than Jesus. This is a prophetic invitation to knock it off. Stop looking to religion. Stop looking to church, to spirituality, to intellect, academia, to preference and agenda, to your career, your money, your kids, your marriage. Stop looking to all of that as Jesus. Because only Jesus brings light and life. Only Jesus is the creator and sustainer of everything. Only Jesus makes visible the invisible God. Your bank account does not make visible the invisible God. Religion does not make visible the invisible God. The church and all of its beauty and warts does not make visible the invisible God. Jesus does. Jesus does, not your career. Not whatever sort of intellectual exercise you are on. Not whatever deconstruction path that you are on. Jesus makes visible the invisible God. If you want life, true life, the life that comes from being found in the creator and sustainer of everything, if you want to become children of the Most High God, know Jesus. He is the way, the truth, the life. There's a prophetic invitation for us. Certainly for those who have not yet put your trust in Jesus, the invitation is wide open. If you want to experience life, know Jesus. But there's also an invitation for those of us who've been doing the Christian thing for a really long time and to ask ourselves the hard question, what have we been satisfied with in the place of Jesus? What is it that has taken the place of Jesus for us? 
What have we tried to make Jesus in our life? The invitation is for you and me is to lay all that baggage down, all the good stuff that becomes God's stuff, lay it down and to truly know Jesus. That's the invitation. That's the invitation of today, the sermon, the text. It's the invitation of the first 18 verses. Not only know about Jesus and know who he is and what he came to do, but to know him experientially, to encounter the living God, to know him. And maybe for some of you, the invitation is to move on from just knowing things about him to knowing him. This word knowing in the Greek kind of takes on two different forms, gnosis and epignosis. And gnosis is this like intellectual, like I know something, like I know math problems or I know about my car or I know facts about Sherry, my wife. But epignosis is this experiential knowledge, the kind of knowledge you only get from being in a relationship with someone. So in the same way that I can know about Sherry by learning facts about her, like her favorite flowers or ice cream or color or birthday or whatever, I only know her experientially by being with her. This message comes at the crux of of what a disciple even is, to be with Jesus, to become like Jesus, and to do what he did. And the invitation for a disciple or an apprentice is my favorite word of Jesus is to actually orient your life around those goals. And the first of that goal is to simply be with him. So as we step into John, um, the invitation is open to not only know Jesus like intellectually, but know him by being with him, by spending time with him. Yeah, learning about him is a part of that. That's why we're in John together. We're going to learn a lot about Jesus together, but that's not the end. Know Jesus. Be with him. That is the invitation today. Whether you have yet to put your trust and faith and belief in Jesus, like John says, whether you've been a Christian for a long time or whether you're actually working through what it even means to follow Jesus, the invitation is all the same. Be with him. Know Jesus. And Jesus, um, as we just sit here reflecting on this message, as we sit here reflecting on Um, These momentous few verses opening up a beautiful biography of your life here on earth. Um, I'm just, I ask that you'd meet us here. Whether we're watching online, whether we're watching in a backyard, by ourselves or with friends or our community, Jesus, would you meet with us here in this place? Would you remind us that the same spirit that raised you from the dead lives in us? Would you remind us that you say you'll never leave or forsake us. You'll be with us always till the end of the age. And so no matter where we are at in our faith journey, as we cry out to you and say, we want to know you and not just know about you, Jesus, would you encounter us in a profound and a very real and tangible way right now? Holy Spirit, make us aware of the presence and reality of Jesus with us right now. Amen.